And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hodnell. This is the Ken Hodnell Show. Coming to you from our studios around here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is February 21st. 52nd day of the year. 313 days remain till the year's over with. Now, somebody asked me why I don't mention what uh, events happen on any particular date. So I'm going to do that. Today is National Pancake Day. National Sticky Bun Day. The birth anniversary of His Majesty the King. The King of Bhutan. Certainly everybody in the United States needs to know that. Brazilian Carnival. Card Reading Day. Um, Earth God's Birthday, Ecuador Carnival, the first one was a Brazilian Carnival, Fashnak Day, Vanuatu Day, an important figure in the history of Vanuatu, International Mother Language Day, the UN wanted this one, Appreciate the beauty and importance of different languages and cultures on this particular day. Now, since a lot of students I met can barely speak English, um, I don't know what it's going to do, but what the heck. King Herod the Fifth Day, Language Day, where we all work together to save many of the world's endangered languages and historical heritage. People are dying in the streets, but we're going to save the languages. Uh, Language Martyrs Day. Lassar. The Bhutanese New Year. Mardi Gras. National Green Free Day. Robert Gabriel Mugabe National Youth Day. Uh, The Mongolian Lunar New Year. Sagan Sar and Zonga Festival. Um, now I'm I have done as I was requested, so that I don't get accused anymore of being short-sighted or preferring my country over others. Well, four fifty-two. Severianus, Bishop of Scythopolis, is martyred in Palestine. 1245, Thomas, the first known Bishop of Finland, is granted uh, resignation after confessing to torture and forgery. Sixteen thirteen, Mikhail is per, uh, unanimously elected Tsar uh, by a national assembly beginning the Romanov dynasty of Imperial Russia. 1797, force of 1,400 French soldiers invade Britain at Fishguard in support of the Society of United Fishermen. 500 British reservists defeated the 1,400 Frenchmen, which doesn't say much about the French military prowess. 
1804, the first self-propelling steam locomotive makes its outing at the Penny Darren Ironworks in Wales. 1808, without a previous declaration of war, Russian troops crossed the border to Sweden at the Balfors in eastern Finland, beginning the Finnish War in which the Sweden will lose the eastern half of the country to Russia. The eastern half of Sweden was actually Finland. 1828, the initial issue of the Cherokee Phoenix is the first periodical to use the Cherokee syllabary invented by Sequoia. 1842, John Greenall is granted the first U.S. patent for the sewing machine. Even though we remember Singer uh, more than we do that, uh, Greenall. 1848, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels published the Communist Manifesto, which has made so many of the last of the left just have unbelievable orgasms at the excitement that creates in their in their uh, minds. 1878, the uh, first uh, telephone directories published in New Haven, Connecticut. 1885, the newly completed Washington Monument is dedicated. 1896, an Englishman raised in Australia, Bob Fitzsimmons, found an Irishman, Peter Mayer, an American-promoted event which technically took place in Mexico, winning the 1896 World Heavyweight Championship in Boxing. 1913, Ioan, uh Nina is incorporated into the Greek state after the Balkan Wars. On this day in 1916, the Battle of Verdun begins in France in World War I. 1918, the last Carolina parakeet dies in captivity at the Cincinnati Zoo. 1919, German socialist Karl Eisner is assassinated. His death results in the establishment of the Bavarian Soviet Republic and Parliament and the government uh, fleeing Munich, Germany. 1921, uh, Constituent Assembly of the Democratic Republic of Georgia adopts the country's uh, first constitution. 1921, Reza Shah takes the control of Tehran during a successful coup. 1925, the New Yorker publishes its first issue. 1929, uh, the first battle of the Warlord Rebellion in southeastern Shandong against the nationalist government of China. 24,000 strong rebel force led by Zhang Chongchang is defeated uh, at uh, Zifu by 7,000 uh, NRA troops. 1937, the League of Nations bans foreign national volunteers in the Spanish Civil War. Foreign national volunteers are actually mercenaries. 1945, World War II, during the Battle of Iwo Jima, Japanese kamikaze planes sink the escort carrier USS Bismarck Sea and damages the USS Saratoga. 1945, World War II, the Brazilian Expeditionary Force defeat the German forces in the Battle of Monte Castello on the Italian front. Um... 1947 in New York City, Edwin Land 
demonstrates the first instant camera, the Polaroid land camera, to a meeting of the Optical Society of America. 1948, NASCAR is incorporated. A boon to beer drinkers everywhere. 1952, the British government under Winston Churchill abolishes identity cards in the UK to set the people free. The uh, 1952, the Bengal language movement protests occur at the University of Dhaka in East Pakistan, now Bangladesh. 1958, the CND symbol, also known as the peace symbol, commissioned by the Direct Action Committee in protest against the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment. It's designed and completed by Gerald uh, Holtham. 1965, Malcolm X is gunned down while doing his giving a speech to the in the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem. I think his own uh, one of his own security guards shot him. Then in seventy one the convention on psychotropic substances is signed in Vienna. Nineteen seventy two President Richard Nixon visits China to normalize Sino American relations, which have now, of course, gone to hell in a handbasket. 1972, the Soviet unmanned spaceship Luna 20 lands on the moon. 73, in the Sinai Desert, Israel fighter aircraft shoot down Libyan Arab Airlines Flight uh, 114, kills 108. Uh, 1974, the last Israeli soldiers leave the west bank of the Suez Canal pursuant to a truce with Egypt. 1975, during Watergate scandal, former U.S. Attorney General John Mitchell and former White House aides H.R. Haldeman and John Ehrlichman are sentenced to prison. 1994, Aldrich Ames is arrested by the FBI uh, for selling national secrets to the Soviet Union in Arlington County, Virginia. Today, It'd be interesting to find if there were any FBI agents who weren't selling secrets to somebody. 1995, Steve Fawcett lands in Leader, Saskatchewan, Canada, becoming the first person to make a solo flight across the Pacific Ocean in a balloon, no less. 2013, 17 are killed and 119 injured following a Several bombings in the Indian city of Hyderabad. And in 2022, the, in the Russia-Ukrainian crisis, Russian President Vladimir Putin declares the Luhansk People's Republic and Donetsk People's Republic as independent from Ukraine and moves troops into the region. The UN, of course, condemns it, and Putin effectively gave him the finger. Putin doesn't seem to understand. Russia no longer has a czar. He's supposed to have a democratically erected president. Well, we were talking yesterday about the fact that a band of phantom Indians plagued the settlers of Gloucester, Massachusetts back in 1692. They came night after night, skirmishing with the English and firing bullet 
bulletless guns. And although the Indians never killed or scalped anybody, the colonists, of course, were upset and heavily fortified their positions. Walter Scott wrote about it. He said the English became convinced that they weren't real Indians. They were the devil and his agents. Now, North American Indians have innumerable legends. I did a little research last night after I came out, uh, in support of this particular uh, story. And they have legends about an entity they call the Trickster because he would turn up occasionally and play wild and vicious pranks on everybody. You know, the Earth uh, mimics of man or phantom inhabitants or whatever you want to call them. Uh, of course, assume many other roles, especially in the widely accepted sphere of psychic phenomena. Tell me of all this, the, the uh, Kojak, a famous actor, told Hollywood reporter Dick Kleiner's story involving a black Cadillac. It happened when Savalas was young and absolutely flat broke. His car ran out of gas on Long Island and started walking. Black Cadillac just came out of nowhere, and the driver offered him a lift. And the driver, dressed entirely in white, a refreshing switch, didn't say a whole lot. One point, he offered Zavallis a dollar to buy some gas. And uh, the actor insisted the man write down his name and address on a piece of paper so he could repay him. They found a gas station, and the driver waited while Zavallis bought a can of gas and drove him back to his own car. And as Savalos was getting ready to get out of the car, the, the driver said, uh, I know uh, Harry Aganis. Well, that name didn't mean anything to Savalos, so he asked who Harry Aganis was, and he said he's a utility pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. Then the, the driver waited while Savalos poured the gas into his car and actually gave him a push to get him started. And then they parted. Next day, Savalas was bum-fuzzled to, uh, by a newspaper headline announcing the sudden death of uh, Harry Aganis. He decided to call the phone number on that slip of paper that the man in the, um, in the black uh, limo had given him. And it was in Massachusetts. The woman answered. Savalas told he wanted to speak to Bill, the name the man had given him, and uh, there was a pause, and another woman came on the line. And she, Savalas began uh, talking to the second woman and said, I just met Bill last night and something happened and I wanted, uh, and the woman interrupted and said, you met him last night? Then she said her husband and Bill had been dead for three years. Later on, she went with Savalas in New York City and he told her her husband buried, uh, she told him that her husband buried in a white suit. Showed him the last letter her husband had written and he was, Startled to see the handwriting matched the handwriting on the slip of paper that the Cadillac driver had given him. Well, the, you have to understand the whole fabric of psychic belief is woven from stories such as this, which number in the thousands and are accepted by millions as proof of survival after death. But investigators in, informed in the antics of these, uh, well, let's call them ultra-terrestrials, uh, um, 
mimics are tend to look deeper. And these entities labor to cultivate belief in various frames of reference and then they deliberately create new manifestations that support these beliefs. I mean, take Savalas' story. He rode in a physically real Cadillac and spoke to a seemingly real man. If the incident was just a joke of some kind, it was a very complicated and pointless joke. Now, Phantom Campers, vehicles are built on trailers, have been widely reported in the western states. And there are reports of Phantom airplanes and helicopters by the hundreds. In 1930, thousands of people in northern Europe saw formations of mysterious airplanes over Norway, Sweden, and Finland. They were called ghost rockets or ghost flyers. And despite extensive searches by the military forces of several countries these uh, for the source of these ghostly craft, they were, it was never determined. During World War II, military intelligence groups collected a number of Phantom airplane sightings from pilots coming back from missions. Crews of several bombers from the 92nd Group reported uh, um, an interesting story that took place while they were flying over Germany. According to the story they told, four P-47s, thought to be friendly American aircraft flown by the enemy, were observed on the approach to the initial point at 22,000 feet. These aircraft flew out of the to the side in parallel with the the combat wing formation in the manner of fighter escort. Then they executed a 90-degree turn and toward the head of the combat wing formation. Now, these aircraft were originally at 800 yards um, on the port side. And they approached to within 300 yards where they nosed up and flew away, showing a full plan view of themselves. Positive in, uh, identification was obtained by several um, of the combat aircraft. Uh, the aircraft had brown fuselages and the, the wings were very dark color, almost black. No white cowling and no white tail markings were observed. No insignia was observed. The aircraft didn't open fire, even though several of the B-17s fired on them. Last P-47 escort had long since departed and the enemy aircraft had been attacking for some time at that point. Now the now this came out of an intelligence report submitted by the members uh, of the combat formation, and they proposed the theory. It was in the first line that I, that I uh, related: four P forty sevens thought to be friendly American aircraft flown by the enemy proved to be invalid. Mystery planes didn't fire at the American bombers, but were fired on instead. If the Germans had attempted such a ploy with captured aircraft, they certainly would have painted appropriate insignia on the planes. And after having uh, succeeded in getting within 300 yards of the bombers, the pilots, if they were German, would certainly have opened fire. Instead, they flew away. Now, low-flying mystery airplanes reported in 1969 and 1970 were most often identified as resembling the P-38s, the uh, twin-engine dual-fuselage fighters used in the Pacific in World War II. 
Now, these were fast, noisy aircraft. But our mystery planes moved very slowly and in complete silence. They execute impossible maneuvers, such as sudden right ankle turns, and disappear as mysteriously as they appear. Now, I will point out that mystery planes are seen even today, much less 50 years ago, which is when these reports are um, come from. Only a handful of P-38s were um, still operational at that time, and very, very few operational today, and they weren't the culprits in these cases. Like the ghost flyers in 1934, they're dull gray and violate all regulations by failing to show any license number or insignia. So the question becomes, could these phantom aircraft be part and parcel of the same phenomena that produces phantom automobiles and campers? Could they be apparitions and transmogrifications of energy that can be properly categorized with the disappearing Indians of Gloucester? Evidence suggests this could well, very well be the case. In other ages, flying ships are uh, sometimes reported. <coughs> Excuse me. England's uh, Flying Saucer Review from May and June of 1970 reprinted a story from 1743. Farmer near... Uh, Pimeo Wales claimed he'd sent a flying sailboat that year. He estimated it was about uh, 1,500 feet in the air and could have been about 90 tons. The keel of the ship was plainly seen, which rules out mirages for ships far out at sea. And similar phenomena has been reported in that same area 10 years before that. Now, ferry lore is also filled with alleged sightings of Ferry ships complete with billowing sails. The problem of determining fact from fantasy, compounded by these amazing, confusing, and scientifically inadmissible subjective observations. UFO cults have solved this dilemma by simply throwing out this kind of material and concentrating only on those reports that uh, describe circular or cigar-shaped objects. But we have to consider all the forms reported with equal care if we're going to arrive at any valid conclusions. No way to investigate a flying saucer after it's flown away, but it is possible to study the people who saw it and the terrain over which it appeared. If we're dealing with clever mimics and transmogrifications of energy, and if man has been observing these things throughout his history, then the real clues have to be found in the thousands of volumes of made in all languages describing these observations and encounters. One basic fact becomes very obvious from the, what we've uh, covered so far. These entities and things are not necessarily from some other planet. They're actually closely tied to the human race. They're a part of our immediate environment in, in some unfathomable fashion and in, to a very large extent are primarily concerned with misleading us, misinforming us, and playing games with us. These mysterious members of the uh, wells and wings over the world are our benefactors and our enemies. They educate us. They guide us. They torment us. 
They've given us hope, guided our religion and philosophies, and watched us crawl out of the caves and build rockets to the moon. They may have watched other civilizations come and go. They may have sincerely helped us to preserve the memories of those lost ages and the past mistakes those early civilizations made. Or it may all be rubbish and we may be nothing more than the pawns and some mischievous game. Theologians and philosophers have always been troubled by the nearly impossible task of sorting the real from the unreal and the truth from the false. Maybe the only workable criterion, the ancient one, uh, of judging them by their works. What did they do, actually? Now, you know, there's been many interesting stories pop up in the UFO field. And some of them have been so ubiquitous that there had to be official denial. For example, General Colonel Spatz, Air Force Chief of Staff, told a press conference in 1948, there's no truth to the rumors flying saucers are from Spain and they're piloted by Spaniards. Now this was <coughs> certainly a an astonishing statement since a review of all the UFO literature and fan magazines of that period has failed to uncover even a hint of a rumor. It suggests that people must have been reporting slight, dark-complexioned pilots to the Air Force back in 1948, long before the UFO bus started taking flying saucer occupants' sightings seriously. In his report on the Maury Island UFO hoax in 1947, Kenneth Arnold describes meeting a Small, dark, foreign-looking man who was tinkering with the motor of a beat-up boat in Tacoma Harbor. Ray Palmer, author of Amazing Stories magazines in Chicago, commissioned Arnold to investigate the puzzling Maury Island affair, which began with a dome-shaped object rained slag down on a boat near Maury Island. Pieces of that slag actually hit and killed a dog on board the boat and injured a boy, the son of Harold Dowell, who was the pilot of the boat. Early the next morning, according to Dow, 1947 Buick drove up to his home and a black-suited man of medium height visited him. This man, according to the storyteller, recited in detail everything that had happened the day before as if he'd been there. And he warned Dow not to discuss his sightings with anybody, hinting that if he did, there might be uh, unpleasant repercussions which would affect him and his family. And since Don, the others hadn't told anybody of their sightings yet, and other UFOs, were, and since UFOs were still uh, publicly unknown, um, Don was naturally puzzled by a strange visitor. This was known as the first modern MIB report. Now, this was actually three days before Kenneth Arnold had his famous sighting of the uh, the nine circular craft flying over Mount Rainier. Dahl's boss, uh, boss, Fred Chrisman, he also was the owner of the boat, became a central figure in the mystery. And Dahl himself vanished soon after his interview with Arnold and efforts by later investigators 
uh, to locate him failed. Chris might have been a flyer in World War II, and he was suddenly recalled into the service in 47, flown to Alaska and stationed in Greenland. Recent years, the amateur sleuths engaged in investigating the conspiracy to assassinate President Kennedy tried to implicate Chrisman. District Attorney James Garrison of New Orleans subpoenaed Fred Lee Chrisman of Tacoma, Washington, to testify before the grand jury and panel to uh, listen to Garrison's evidence against Clay Shaw. That was according to a wire service story in November 1968. Christmas was identified as a radio announcer. Garrison's investigators implied that he was either a member of the CIA or had been engaged in undercover activity for a part of the industrial warfare complex. Also allegedly operated under a cover as a preacher and was engaged in work to help the gypsies. Now, these stories caused a chain reaction in UFO circles, of course, since UFO believers have long accused the CIA of being somehow connected with the flying saucer mystery. Of course, the CIA was in its infancy in 1947. Uh, it had taken over from the, the World War II OSS. And... Uh, it was just getting its feet on the ground as an agency at the time of the uh, Maury Island case and was largely staffed by naval personnel from World War II intelligence units. Now, Clay Shaw was tried early in 1969, accused by Garrison of having conspired to murder President Kennedy. Of course, thanks to governmental interference, he was uh, found innocent and freed. The exact nature of Christmas' testimony before the grand jury is still not known. And he didn't testify in the actual trial. When Ray Palmer, one of the best-informed ufologists, uh, summarized his own theories about the Moore Island mystery in the book he wrote with Arnold, he said, uh, was the Tacoma affair a hoax? And if it was, whose hoax was it? The book they wrote was called The Coming of the Saucers. Recent years, many seemingly solid flying saucer cases have dissolved in confusion under close investigation. Often they appear to be outrageous hoaxes perpetuated by some mysterious third party. Although the general tendency is to blame the innocent witnesses. And these bizarre hoaxes are often identical to the mischievous fairy hoaxes and games played eons before. The Moore Island case fell apart in Arnold's hands. The slag samples given to him by Don Chrisman were switched by somebody to investigating UFO uh, Air Force officers. Brown and Davidson were killed when their plane crashed shortly after leaving Tacoma. Dahl vanished. Christmas uh, was literally exiled to Greenland for two years. Tacoma newsman uh, Paul Lance, who helped Arnold in his investigation, died suddenly a short time later of unknown causes. Bomber claims that a cigar box filled with original slag samples was stolen from his Chicago office soon afterwards. And at one point, Ted Morello of the United Press took uh, Arnold aside and told him, uh, you're involved in something that's beyond our power here to find out anything about. We tried to find out information at the McCord Air, uh, Field at Tacoma Air Force Base and drew a blank. We have informants there who are practically smell the runways for news. We've exhausted every avenue attempting to place what has happened uh, together as it sort of makes some sense. I'm just going to give you some sound advice. Get out of this town until whatever it is is blown over. Or Arnold got in his private plane and 
headed home. Stopped in Pendleton, Oregon, refueled and took off again. His engine stopped cold. Only quick thinking and expert flying saved him from a serious crash. Are we talking sabotage here? There were suspicions. Despite the statements of General Spatz and Kenneth Arnold in 1947 and 8, slight dark-skinned men did not really begin to appear in published UFO reports until around 1954. There were, though, descriptions of dark or heavily suntanned UFO occupants as far back as 1897. Men in black phenomena really didn't get a grip on the UFO field until the early 1950s. Pioneer ufologist Albert Bender of Bridgeport, Connecticut, gave the MIB mystery new impetus when he suddenly closed down his International Flying Saucer Bureau in 1953, hinting that three men in black suits had terrorized him into abandoning his research. Other UFO researchers studied these, his guided, guarded remarks and concluded he'd been pressured out of business by sinister agents of the government. Three years later, Gray Barker, a UFO investigator in West Virginia, published They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, which uh, dealt with numerous MIB stories from as far away as New Zealand. But the Bender case was actually the cornerstone of Barker's theory. The MIB either represented some government author- governmental authority employing uh, questionable methods to silence UFO researchers, or that a more fantastic sponsorship is responsible for their deeds. Many of these dark-skinned, oriental-featured gentlemen visited UFO witnesses wearing Air Force uniforms. This fact alone and the vast quantity of reported uh, visits quickly led the UFO buffs to believe their enemy was actually the U.S. Air Force. Soon the UFO believers and organizations were devoting many of their time, energy, and money to investigating the Air Force and as the paranoia mounted to investigating each other. Popular books by Donald Kehoe, a retired Marine Corps pilot, were largely uh, concerned with the alleged Air Force and governmental conspiracy to hide the truth about flying saucers from the public. Other UFO writers of the late 50s followed uh, Kehoe's example, and this monumental conspiracy became uh, one of the main facts touted in ufology. Two years after he suddenly withdrew from UFO research, Albert Bender released his full story. It's called Flying Saucers and the Three Men, which was privately published by Gray Barker. It proved to be far more unbelievable than any of the speculations. He claimed he'd been visited by a dark-skinned gentleman with glowing eyes who materialized and dematerialized in his apartment. On one occasion, he said he'd been transported to a secret UFO base in Antarctica where he'd been told the secret. UFOs were actually here to collect a rare and valuable element from the Earth's ocean project to be completed in the early 60s and the flying saucers then to leave our planet and he'd be free to write about what he had seen and experienced. Well, Bender's revelations actually made no sense to the UFO community since few of them were acquainted with demonology and the fairy myths of the Middle Ages. They didn't realize this purported experience followed classic patterns. In addition to his interest in flying saucers, Bender had also been involved in a study of black magic and black magic as we've well learned as we go along. It's always been a major method for conjuring up elementals. 
He'd been plagued by odors of sulfur and strange poltergeist, uh, poltergeistic manifestations during the, the period of the visitations by these mysterious visitors. He also suffered certain medical effects, such as chronic headaches and lapses of memory, which are common symptoms of the contactee syndrome. UFO bus quickly branded Bender a nut who was trying to get rich off flying saucers. When actually his book only sold a few thousand copies to the UFO hardcore and made him the subject of considerable criticism and ridicule. Now, countless MIB-type stories have been collected and published by the UFO investigators all over the world. From the stuffy anti-UFO report at a Colorado University um, study, which had been commissioned by the Air Force in 1967, uh, discussed only a few cases. Case number, case number 52 of the report occupies 18 pages, discusses in detail the strange experience of a Santa Ana, California highway inspector named Rex Heflin took a series of Polaroid photographs of a circular object near a Marine Corps airfield on August 3, 1965. Had copies made of these pictures, fortunately, and turned over the originals to two men who claimed to represent the NORAD. Later, NORAD uh, emphatically denied that any of their personnel had visited Heflin, and the original photographs never been located. Luckily, as I said, he made copies. Two years later, soon after... Scientists from Colorado University began their investigation of the Heflin case. He got another group of strange visitors. They, they appeared uh, at his um, home at dusk on Wednesday, October 11, 1967, dressed as in Air Force uniforms. Because of his earlier experience, he inspected their credentials carefully and wrote down their names and other information. They questioned him about the photos and asked him if he knew anything about the Bermuda Triangle. That's an area where a number of planes and ships have vanished. During the questioning, the witnesses said he noted a car parked in the street with indistinct lettering on the front door. He said in the back seat he, could, he saw a figure and a violent glow where the witness, uh, which the witness attributed to instrument dials. He thought he was being photographed and recorded. In the meantime, his FM uh, multiplex radio was playing in the living room, and during the questioning, it made several loud, audible pops. Dr. James McDonald, a meteorologist from the University of Arizona and other investigators, later tried to check out the identity of these visitors, and as usual, they drew a complete blank. Despite their credentials and uniforms, these men were apparently impostors. Numerous other witnesses have also reported visits from men in big black uh, cars, usually Cadillacs, and peculiar purplish glows lighting their interiors. There's even a number of witnesses who claim to have been temporarily kidnapped in such automobiles. They've described strange psychedelic lights on the dashboard that caused them to fall into hypnotic trances. None reported being told to cluck like a chicken, though. Some of these phantom vehicles have special insignia uh, printed on their doors, a triangle with a bolt of lightning passing through it. Other cases, witnesses said the symbol was the classic triangle of an eye, and with an eye in it, the ancient symbol for the deity, and the MIB identified themselves as agents of the nation of the third eye. Such stories are merely given wide circulation and almost never published. So it's interesting that so many far-flung witnesses managed to come up with the same identical details. 
One of the first uh, clues that a UFO flap was about to break on Long Island in the spring of 67 was a series of random reports describing strange oriental or gypsy-like entities parading across people's lawns in the middle of the night. One man living in an isolated farm near Melville, New York, said he saw a metallic disc hovering a few feet above one of his fields in broad daylight. Ladder was hanging down from it, he said, and as he watched, it was retracted into the object, and the whole thing flew off. A few days later, he answered a knock at his door and was surprised to see a gypsy lady standing there, dressed in a long gray gown and wore sandals. Skin was deep olive, and her eyes had an oriental cast. He said she was about five foot four, and her hair was long and so black it looked like it had been dyed. She said, I've traveled a long way. Can I have a glass of water? I have to take a pill. So he gave her the water, and she took a round green pill, thanked him, and left. Well, after a moment, he looked outside, but there was no car anywhere to be seen. And he lived on an isolated back road, and visitors, especially visitors traveling by foot, are very, very rare. Now, the phrase, I've traveled a long way, is an old Masonic passphrase that's frequently used in these contexts. Sometimes the entity would say, what time is it, or what's your time? Pill-taking ploy is also a common procedure. When a most peculiar being visited a family on Cape May, New Jersey in early 1967, that visitor also asked for water to take a pill. He, too, had traveled a long way. And after concluding what was can only be described as an inane interview with the family, he walked into the night, got into a black Cadillac, and drove off without bothering to cut the lights on. Phil's summary of that uh, case was published in Flying Saucer Review's second special issue. And a woman living in an old house on the summit of a high hill in Melville, New York area, had a visit from a strange quartet around the same time that the gypsy lady dropped in on the farmer. Four Indians appeared on her doorstep with a after a heavy seasonal rainfall. Three of them were stately, dark skin, had pointed faces and oriental features, dressed in the expensively cut gray suits. Fourth man looked a little different. He looked normal, she said, and was partly dressed in a frayed black jacket. They told her their, their tribe had originally owned her property, and they were going to try to get it back. Well, as if that wasn't disturbing enough, what frightened the woman most, and she was frightened, she admitted, was that there was no mud on their neatly shined shoes, and they didn't have a car. The road and her lawn were soupy with mud at that point in time because of the heavy rain. And after they left, she was shocked to realize they didn't leave any footprints on her lawn. In case after case, amateur UFO investigators have rejected the testimony of sincere witnesses who claim to have seen UFOs land and entities dismount because no footprints could be found at, at that site afterwards. 1.30 in the morning, Wednesday, March 1st, 1967, a man named DeWitt Baldwin was hunting near Eden, New York. And according to his story, he heard a funny noise and saw a circular gold-covered object land. He said, I was scared. I didn't know what to do. And while I was watching, it, a door opened, like a sliding elevator door, and a man walked out and down the incline, that had been created by the opening of the door, dressed in a sort of black tight-fitting suit like a flyer and had on some sort of helmet and goggles. And uh, he asked me what I was doing. Now, 
The witness said he wasn't white and he wasn't black. Talked very plainly with no accent. I told him I was hunting and he asked me if I was born there and I said no, I was born in Georgia. And he took my gun, looked at it, and handed it back. Told me he'd be back. Walked up the the incline into the saucer and seconds later, zipped out of sight. Well, what was peculiar to Mr. Baldwin was he found that there was a crack in the muzzle of his shotgun after the man had examined it. None of the object, none of the pilot, with any marks in the fresh snow that was on the ground. Local UFO investigators regarded this as proof Mr. Baldwin was making his story up and was merely seeking notoriety. Well, as I know a college professor who uh, writes popular books under the pseudonym of Brad Steiger had been investigating men in black cases in the Midwest for a number of years. Um, wrote a book called Flying Saucer Invasion. And in that book, he disclosed another common MIB tactic, which is being widely employed, these to discredit investigators. According to what he wrote, in the summer of 1968, he got a long-distance telephone call from a journalist friend who was covering a UFO flap for his local newspaper. And his friend said, Blast Brad Steiger and Joan uh, Ratnar, and down with John Keel. Well, Steiger recognized his friend's voice and asked him what the problem was. He said, I'm trying to cover this flap that's going on here. Everybody and their dog has seen UFOs, but every time I try to dig deep, the eyewitnesses clam up and says, I won't say any more. Brad Steiger said awful things will happen to me if I tell too much. One lady reported that John Keel himself had told her that she'd be carried off by the saucer people if she talked to anybody what she'd seen. Well, Steiger knew he hadn't been there, and he knew Keel hadn't either. And uh, neither he nor Keel would say such things, in even a jesting fashion, if they had been in the locale. So he tried to get more information from his friend. He said... Every place I go, the witness has been given a copy of one of Steiger or Wettenauer's books or a magazine with an article in it by either Steiger or Keel. And whoever's delivering these things must be adding their own interpretation because, according to Steiger, the books or the articles were not supposed to frighten people. And uh, he asked his friend, have you seen any of these people? And the newsman said, well, not to this afternoon. I arrived at the farmhouse a few minutes after the, uh, they did. And he said, they're damn unfriendly little monkeys. I was trying to talk to the farmer's wife, and they were chattering at the farmer and waving a copy of this magazine in their hands and telling the man how Brad Steiger was warning all UFO sighters not to talk. There were short men in dark suits. All three of them had deep suntans. Um, and they were all wearing dark glasses. Couldn't see their eyes. Well, this gives you an idea of why there's so much paranoia in the UFO field. There's also uh, dilettantes and egomaniacs. I've dealt with a number of those. Um, when these mystery men pose as Air Force officers, well-known investigators, members of the amateur UFO organizations, they tend to deliberately sow confusion and fear in their wake. There are even reliable reports describing uh, entities that resembled exactly the men there pretending to be. On several occasions, he's using the German word doppelgangers. 
have visited witnesses who have been previously interviewed, uh, creating considerable confusion. Colorado University study tried to shrug off the Heflin photos because of the internal inconsistencies in the story. He said he was visited by three non-existent military officers. Similar episodes have led to extended feuds between amateur investigators and UFO investigating groups, each believing the others have been warning witnesses not to talk to them. In many of these episodes, the MIB appear on the scene immediately after the sighting, before the witnesses had a chance to report it to anybody. They often uh, flourish an identification card and announcer from Washington of the CIA. Um, and let's face it, folks, any CIA officer worth his salt is not going to announce he's a CIA officer. When they use the Air Force ploy, they have the uncanny ability to use the name of an existing officer, but they change the rank. So uh, Colonel Higgins, for example, may turn up in a flap area where an actual sergeant named Higgins is stationed at the nearby base. And adding to the nonsense and confusion, we have the dreary fact ufologies has always attracted eccentric personalities, and, and a few of these situations have proven to be their doing. One quasi-scientific UFO group maintains an office in Washington, D.C., and some of their members are fond of waving their membership cards about uh, authoritatively giving the false impression they represent a government agency. The whole mess began in Tacoma in 1947. And since then, the MIB manifestations have created a body of myth and lore, fingering the federal government as the sinister silencer of UFO witnesses and the censor of UFO news and the press. Now, the hardcore UFO buffs maintain these myths, though. They ignore the evidence found in the other frames of reference that point to the puzzling existence of the parahuman mimics of man that have always been engaged in mischievous and sometimes malicious shenanigans. Toro Lorenzen, who uh, ran the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization uh, starting in 1952, devoted a chapter of her book, UFOs Over America, to the CIA's purported sinister interest in the subject. And her evidence, if you want to call it that, was a combination of hearsay, speculation, coincidence, and classic MIB manipulations. And it's not surprising, of course, that some of the UFO organizations have occasionally been monitored by the FBI and other agencies since the leading proponents of UFO beliefs have made a habit of publicly attacking the government and the military establishments on radio and TV. Well, some UFO publications do border on the subversive, uh, no question about that. In the 1950s, a strong communist influence was visible, and some major groups collapsed when they turned more political than Ufology, ufology, ufological, I guess is the word. In the 1960s, ufology swung in the other direction as members of the extreme right wing embraced the flying saucer cause. In 1969, the long-suffering Air Force got out of the UFO business, they said, by closing down Project Blue Book, though it's come to light that it merely um, went underground, so to speak. On that note, we come to the end of today's show. Don't have time to start the next segment. So we'll be back tomorrow and talk more about some of the bizarre aspects of the UFO mystery. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a true, enjoyable evening.